China and Russia and everyone else actually is learning from the Ukraine conflict is that you don't need anti-satellite weapons to disable uh, satellites. They are much more expensive to even build a missile. And then they are also very visible. You know who's doing it immediately. What they're thinking now is that we probably should invest even more in our cyber capability. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, podcasters. This is the fourth and final episode in a four-part series on cybersecurity and space systems. And we're doing this because this week marks an important anniversary for space and international security. But before we get to that, this week we also witnessed a first. Intuitive Machines became the first commercial space company to land on the moon. The Odysseus lander is the first U.S. spacecraft to successfully reach the lunar surface since 1972. Despite the fact that it has toppled over, this is a huge accomplishment, and it will be followed by more commercial missions. So while we celebrate this giant achievement, we also need to consider how to protect it and other commercial space activities, which include services the U.S. military, its allies, and partners depend on. To do that, we need to understand the adversaries and strategic competitors and what they've learned in the two years since Russian state hackers attacked a satellite communications network owned by the U.S. company Viasat. It was Russia's first offensive action. On February 24th, 2022, it was launched in the early hours to shape the battlefield ahead of a ground and amphibious invasion of Ukraine. The intent was to deny the Ukraine government, especially its military and its citizens, the ability to communicate with each other and the outside world. Russian President Vladimir Putin's goal was and remains maximalist. According to Russian commentators, Putin and his regime not only want to annex the entire sovereign territory of Ukraine, they will erase the Ukrainian national identity. While the world digests the Kremlin's murder of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, keep in mind that Putin and his regime are holding roughly 20,000 Ukrainian children that his military has abducted since the beginning of this war. To discuss what nations such as China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea have learned from that cyber attack on space systems and what they've done with that knowledge, we have Sam Visner, Namritha Goswami, and Sean Costigan. Here's our conversation. Hello, Sam, Namritha, Sean. Thank you all so much for making the time to join me today. Thank, thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure. Us. Thank you very much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we start looking at cybersecurity, state actors, and space systems, let's give the audience the opportunity to know each of you. Namritha, you are the downlink regular here, so why not start us off? Sure, Laura. So my name is Namritha Goswami, and I teach international relations and space policy at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. And I'm the co-author of the book, Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. And Sam? Thank you, Laura. I'm Sam Visner. I'm a tech fellow at the Aerospace Corporation, which is a federally funded research and development center. And my principal role is as the chairman of the board of directors of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, which is a public-private partnership for the cybersecurity and uh, resilience of our national space enterprise. And Sean, you're new to the podcast. Welcome. And briefly tell us a little about yourself. So yeah, I, I'm Sean Costigan. I'm the Managing Director of Resilience Strategy at Redshift. And I'm also Professor of Transnational Security at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. In addition, I'm the Senior Advisor for a thing called the Emerging Security Challenges Working Group of the Partnership for Peace Consortium. All that means that I've uh, Got a great deal of experience working in a variety of new realms in cybersecurity, and some of those realms uh, we're going to go into today. So it's a pleasure to be here once again. 
Again, thank you all for bringing your expertise. So let's begin starting with the news, which is a revelation that Russia is gearing up to launch and place a nuclear weapon in space. Most reports say that unidentified U.S. intelligence officials believe it is an anti-satellite weapon or ASAT. Now, speaking just for myself, I initially had real trouble with all the hype coming from the Hill, and that's because this isn't really news. Russia has detonated a nuclear weapon in orbit before, and it's been taken for granted that it has never really stopped working on the program. I could get on my soapbox here. So, Namritha, before I take up more of the oxygen in this conversation, if this is really true that Russia is planning on deploying this space-based nuclear weapon. I just cannot believe that China's Xi Jinping hasn't told his junior partner, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, that such a move is unacceptable because if such a weapon was used, it could topple governments, including both of theirs. No? Yeah, so I think that's a great question to start off this conversation. So as far as the intelligence is concerned, you yourself said it's unidentified, so it's not yet confirmed whether it's a nuclear-capable space-based weapon that can do an electromagnetic pulse with a detonation. But let's take for the sake of conversation that this is true, in a sense that Russia is developing a weapon that is capable of nuclear detonation in space. So for one, as you said, this is going to be of great concern, not just to China, but also to a major Russian partner like India. Because if you have that kind of an electromagnetic pulse or an EMP strike, that's going to fry your your satellite capability that you depend on for critical infrastructure, both military and civilian. And that's going to be of enormous strategic disadvantage to both nations. So for China, the question to answer your question, one of the interesting conversations I hear Chinese security analysts talk about a lot is this very concern that what if, for example, the concern they talk about is that if there is a cyber attack on a satellite system or a spacecraft, Their concern is that if it cuts off nuclear command control, communication, intelligence, surveillance, that could lead to escalation, right? Because you have lost all, you become blind necessarily. You you cannot see, you cannot hear. So I would say that President Xi, uh, in private conversation with uh, Vladimir Putin, might be expressing those concerns because, first of all, their own more than 200 military satellites are under great threat if that happens. So there would be that particular conversation. India would probably have a very similar concern. But then I'll finally end by saying that this is where this particular issue gets very tricky. What is the motivation, right? So for Russia to even give an impression that they are developing a particular nuclear-capable space weapon. One, because that, of course, goes against the Outer Space Treaty that mandates nations that have signed it that they will not put weapons of mass destruction in space. All the nuclear uh, tests that were done were before 1967, in the 1960s. And so that one particular obligation by Russia would also be under a lot of conversation. And China and India, especially China, would see that this is extremely problematic. And finally, to say, in terms of Russia itself, I mean, Russia also depends on space systems and space capability, and they themselves will actually suffer in case they have a EMP detonation in space. I think this is a bargaining posture, Laura, in my perspective. So what Putin, in case he is signaling that they are developing this kind of capability, wants to have a serious conversation about ceasefire in Ukraine with NATO and wants to have a dialogue with Biden. And so you saw this in this recent interview. So in my estimation, and I'll be happy to hear Sam and Sean come in, that this is a lot about bargaining as well. I would have to agree with that point of view. Uh, I think that there is a good deal of signaling here. First things first, it's, it's not clear based on media reporting what is the nature of the system that the Russians are developing and how far along they are in terms of its uh, uh, deployment. But having said that, um, it is, uh, if it's a nuclear weapon in space that could create an electromagnetic pulse, 
the results of the use of that weapon may be difficult to predict. And given the nature of that weapon, I do think there's a good deal of signaling here. The Russians do have a concept of escalate to de-escalate, the idea that if you up the ante enough, the other side will now come to the table and you can de-escalate on terms favorable to you, which I think may be the, the, the game that's afoot here. My own sense of this is that it is, you know, if it's not a bluff, and I think it is more, more likely than not a signal as opposed to, some, to a strong intention, if it is, in fact, a firm intention, it means it's a desperation move. And the difficulty with this is that even if it is a signal, once that capability is developed and deployed, any miscalculation that leads to its use can lead to an escalation. So the fact that it is a signal, the fact that one thinks that the other that one thinks that 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 the other actor is both uh, rational and capable of acute calculation, if in fact it should lead to miscalculation, it could lead to a real escalation. So I think the potential for the use of this weapon, while I don't think it's likely to be used, and I don't know that this is in fact the nature of the weapon that's under discussion, if in fact it is the nature of the weapon that's under discussion, should it be developed, should it be deployed, it opens the door to the kind of miscalculation that I think would be very unfortunate. My guess is that the Chinese are perhaps less concerned about the value of the signaling to the West than they are about the fact that the possibility that a miscalculation could actually lead to the employment of such a system. And they themselves would be, uh, would, would, would find their own systems, I think, just as much as risk as, as anyone else's. Um, and that's my principal concern here, Laura. Sean, what about you? I mean, from everything that I can see, I mean, even the Taliban relies on sat phones to govern. Such a weapon would affect everybody. It it could even possibly, you know, kill astronauts and taikonauts. I would proper to say would really anger the Chinese people. And I don't think she would be able to to contain that. But from your perspective, I mean, what do you think about what Russia is is allegedly yeah. trying Thanks, to Thanks, Laura. Deploy? Yeah, so this is a great uh, opportunity for me to remind uh, myself and everyone that the opinions that I'm sharing here are my own, uh, not those of the U.S. government or NATO or any of the other uh, good organizations or Red Sift uh, that I'm able to work with. So let me just state that, you know, I think... Uh, I come from a perspective of saying we shouldn't panic about anything. The news cycle in this instance seems hyperbolic. And uh, from my perspective, I'd say we should plan and uh, and make decisions based on good planning. And we have time. Yes, there's a risk of miscalculation, but there's a, a risk of being wrapped up in uh, in news as opposed to uh, strategic thinking. And I think that's really, you know, maybe what you were trying, what you were getting at too, Laura, was this like, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. By this. So, yeah, but uh, again, I'm outside of my wheelhouse on this. I'm not a satellite expert. I'm not a space expert. Luckily, I'm uh, surrounded by people in this uh, very good podcast who know much more about it. So I'll stop there. But thanks for letting me add an uninformed opinion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's an informed opinion. I mean, you think strategically anyway. So, you know, it just happens to be another facet of space systems. So, Thank you, though, everybody, for helping me tackle that subject. So let's move on to what I personally believe is a more rational approach to disabling space systems, and that's through a cyber attack. It's relatively more precise. It's cheap comparatively to a nuclear weapon, I mean, considering development, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, cyber attacks are deniable. Uh, and they can be strategic. And it also has the heritage of being used now as the first move in a war, right? The Russian attack on Viasat two years ago this week. So I'm wondering, Sam, what have the adversaries learned? And I'm talking about Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Well, they're learning, they're learning a number of things, uh, Lauren. Thanks for the question. Um, one of the things they're learning is that the use of this kind of a weapon against space systems and other infrastructure is relatively cheap, right? Um, attribution can be difficult, and even if you do have attribution, it's still a relatively inexpensive thing to, to be able to do. Now, there are some things that are not yet entirely learned, and that is, what is the net effect of this? Um, Russia started its invasion of Ukraine by going after the Viasat constellation. In fact, they did that before they even crossed the border. But 
One of the things that was learned was that they were able to, they, they caused a lot of collateral damage. They shut down wind turbines and took out a lot of electrical power generation in Europe. So we've seen, and this isn't the first time we've seen it, a lot of collateral damage, right? The attack against uh, the attack against Ukraine, which hit Maersk and ports all around the world, was also a lot of collateral damage. One thing we're learning about the actors that perpetrate this act is that they are aware that collateral damage might be caused, and they are, if not indifferent to it, they're not going to concern themselves with it. That's something else that we've learned. Something else that is yet to be learned is what is the net effect of this? Did this knock Ukraine out of the war? The Russians have been after the Ukrainian power grid since at least 2014, but Ukraine continues to produce electrical power. Um, The Russians uh, uh, have conducted significant cyber attacks against Ukraine since uh, their invasion. But if you take a look at some of the reporting, particularly very good reports that have come out of uh, Microsoft, and I recommend them to everybody's attention, in fact, they've proved to be somewhat less effective, perhaps, than, than, people, had, uh, than people had thought. Uh, they went after, it appears they went after Starlink, and Starlink was able to patch their terminals with a, with a software downloaded patch. So one of the things that we're learning is that we don't yet know what we're learning. We don't yet know how effective this will be. It's pretty clear that the countries that do this feel that they can do it with impunity. That's something that they've learned. What is less clear is whether or not this is going to be this is going to prove to be effective, that it's going to prove to be decisive or uh, or really change the balance uh, on the battlefield. And and it doesn't mean that it, it can't or it won't. It means that uh, these are still fairly early days. We're still hypothesizing. We don't really have enough data have, to have good theories about this. And since battlefield tactics are changing in any case, what we learned today may or may not be all that useful tomorrow. So I guess what I would say is we ought to keep watching, uh, keep, as they say, keep watching the skies, uh, as, as they say in, in bad monster movies. But the, the issue here is that it is still fairly early days. And that's where I would leave that. But how have these nations, you know, taken I, these I, lessons? I, I'd want right? to I mean, China's here, been watching. Laura, yeah, so sure, I, I, jump in. I agree with some of, uh, you know, what's just been said uh, by, by Sam. I think that there are actual lessons, though, however, uh, with regards to cybersecurity and Ukraine's posture and their defense of, uh, of cyber. And uh, yeah, so in my work, uh, I helped, uh, I led the development of lessons learned for NATO for uh, the first year of the hot war. And uh, we did a lot of work with Ukrainians. And I can say, you know, initially the first bit is uh, a simple bit. Ukraine knows its enemy very well. Right? It has huge advantages in knowing who, uh, who the Russians are and what the Russians are going to do. Second bit, I'd say as Ukraine has stood up a variety of cybersecurity entities and uh, institutions within its government that give us give them great advantage in the defense of those entities. So while Russia can be aggressive, uh, it, uh, I think there's a mistaken question here when people think, you know, is cyber going to be decisive? That's a that's a mistaken sort of construct. I think we shouldn't look at it that way. I think it's a portion of whatever is going to happen during a war, and it isn't necessarily decisive one way or the other. The second mistake oftentimes, and I'm not suggesting, Sam, that you made this mistake, but that lots of defense intellectuals make is that they'll say uh, that the lack of evidence that it has been decisive, it suggests that cyber is just something that isn't all that important. And I think that's really uh, a mistaken perspective, uh, fundamentally, because they're not looking at how wise and uh, the Ukrainians have been in their own investments and in their own uh, development of talent and in their own uh, capacity to be able to work with public-private partnerships, uh, with international partnerships, et cetera, in a uh, fundamental new way. Uh, and I'm not certain that other countries would be so good at it. So uh, for me, that's that's the sort of opening lesson. So I'd, I'd, I'd share that, Sam. I would agree with Sean's point of view about this, Laura. Um, uh, I wouldn't discount it. I think it's it's. I don't think we know enough yet. Um, the the lessons to be learned from this are so far it has an effect, but whether or not that effect is going to prove to be as significant or is going to be the effects that people anticipated, I think it's still early to. I think it's still early to tell. But one point that I think ought to be added here is that. 
countries like Russia and China, but particularly Russia, clearly believe it's an important capability because the investment that they've made and the capabilities that they've developed indicate, A, that this is important to them, and B, that the systems that they're trying to undermine are space systems or the space systems on which Ukraine is 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 depending or certainly is has been using are sufficiently important that they want to attack them. Um, you know, what we'll see over the longer term is whether or not that proves to be true, whether or not, A, they really are as important as we think they are. I think they're absolutely critically important. And you know my views on on critical infrastructure. Um, but whether or not the Russians have actually been able to have the effect that they wanted to have, we will see that over the longer term. But clearly, they think it's important because the capabilities they developed and the investment that they've made to develop those capabilities is substantial. And Russia's in a position where, you know, despite the, the size of their army, you know, they have to make some hard financial choices. So clearly, they're choosing to move out on this front. Yeah, it, it would seem to me, you know, uh, bring a, a little bit more context, especially in terms of space systems. But Russia's not alone in thinking that it's important. Just this December, Microsoft issued a statement on X, which everyone says is, you know, formerly Twitter, right? Uh, Microsoft put out a statement saying that Iran is targeting afresh space companies that provide services to the Department of Defense. It's within the context of the war in Gaza, you know, or even flip the script here. I mean, Ukraine uh, allegedly targeted Russian space systems, I believe, late last month or earlier this one. So this obviously is at least a point or a front that space systems are being targeted by cyber attackers. Uh, absolutely. I, I think the thing that's really fascinating to me, you know, and when I was invited to be on this podcast, I, I got to thinking about uh, if we take a big step back and we say that we've essentially uh, enabled an entire new civilian industry without uh, without cybersecurity first, it's just astonishing to me that we would have allowed, knowing everything we know about cybersecurity today, right, and all the different endpoint attacks and the varieties of attack surface problems uh, that we have globally and the effects of those things on us and the dependency that we have on cyberspace that we would allow uh, you know, and and I mean that uh, allow is a, probably the right word. It's just astonishing to me. So, you know, that we uh, come away, I think, as adults very often, and the, those people who work in strategy, uh, we we talk about surprise, we talk about strategic surprise, et cetera. But I'd rather kind of focus on embarrassment here, because from my perspective, it, none of this should have come as a surprise to us at all. That uh, that our adversaries would be looking to target uh, the weakest links in uh, civilian infrastructure that have uh, that we're dependent on. Uh, whether that's society or the military or others is just just kind of uh, that's to me, if I haven't said it yet uh, enough times, I'm astonished. And I think we might want to just focus on that for a moment. I think, you know, second to that, uh, it's it's a little late, uh, you know, for us to, you know, start tacking on security. And this is where uh, things get weird is very often security is thought of as a cost center. It's thought of particularly cybersecurity is thought of as a cost center. It gets tacked on. Uh, to um, startups and as something that they think is un unacceptable or a budget that they don't want to spend on, they don't have the, the money for it, et cetera. Well, I'd, I'd counter and say that you just you can do nothing essentially without security first, and especially in this space where tolerance is for failure is very low. So while on the one side, yes, uh, Starlink could stand up uh, and fix it or patch something very quickly, it's it's not the case that everyone will have that that same uh, availability of resources, or the uh, uh, nor will that solve for the dependency that we might have on them. So, you know, that's that's the first point. So, it shouldn't astonish us, us at all. I'd say it shouldn't surprise us that our adversaries are going to be uh, looking at uh, our weak underbelly here and our inability to just get our house in order when it comes to the the, the basics of cybersecurity first. So, hope that helps. Yeah, I I think I agree with uh, the conversation here that it is surprising that we start talking about a particular issue once an attack has happened uh, and not earlier, but that's probably the nature of things. But to answer your question in terms of, let's take the case of China. So uh, what has China learned from that particular attack that unfolded? I think when I look at Chinese writings, as well as the strategic conversations happening in China, what is interesting are three very concrete things that they have done in response to this particular 
uh, attack that Russia uh, basically ensued right before or on the day of the invasion on 24th February. One, they really looked and understood the weaknesses of supply chain. So if you look at the Chinese conversations, so they kind of focus on the fact that when you look at that particular attack that happened, which is, of course, term acid rain, right? So they are talking about one very vital thing, and which is that the Viasat's KA satellites basically depended on a subsidiary called SkyLogic. And what was interesting was that the Russian malware and attack was, of course, on the on the modems that was in Ukraine, but also in terms of the software, right? And this where this is where the third party platform really showed weakness. So what is interesting is that what China has done in response is that they, as you know, China has advanced and developed uh, several cybersecurity laws since 2017. Uh, and so in terms of their law, what they have done is that one, they are trying to build up and trying to actually build a case for a concept called zero trust architecture. So this has been built by the China Electronic Standardization Association. And what they talk about is that when you have any company and connected to space cyber integration, and by the way, they recognize that, which is really interesting. So if you well, when you consider their strategic support forces, right? I mean, they house space and cyber and strategic communications slash psyops all under the same roof. Yeah, and guess who basically got them to do that? It was the State Information Council. So, and this is where it's fascinating when you actually break down where the direction came from in terms of integration. So what they understood very early on, and which Sean was mentioning and Sam too, that it is absolutely vital. And this was in the 2019 defense paper that China put out and which actually was directed but the State Council Information Office of the PRC. So what they pointed out and what they directed the PLA to establish was a strategic support force that was too tired, which is, it is a space version and a cyber force. And the, you know what the responsibilities were? Basically securing space systems from cyber attack that included ground systems up to space, especially the ability of adversaries to deny services. So this is what happened in Ukraine, right? Russia was basically using cyber to deny services for military communication, command control, and all that comes with it. And also the other civilian infrastructure, which is power. Power is vital. So that's the lesson. One lesson is that China has to learn the deepest lesson, because of course they're thinking about Taiwan, that supply chain the supply chain mechanism, who is involved in their entire cybersecurity architecture, is absolutely vital. Second, build the institutions, and not just suddenly, they're building it on the 2017 cybersecurity law, data protection law. They even, what is interesting is that they're conceptualizing such cyber connected to space as extraterritorial sovereignty. So there you go. They are actually conceptualizing it from a point of view that they are not just responsible, but they will respond in case something happens to those particular systems. So I think those are the lessons. And actually, if I was quite interested and surprised to see how concrete the lessons were. And they're built into their 14 five-year plan. So don't forget that in 2020, uh, the China National uh, Reform Commission declared satellite internet 5G telecommunication as critical new infrastructure. And the idea for calling something critical is that, first of all, that gets priority in terms of securing it. Second, if somebody or adversary basically jams it or targets it, that is seen as an extreme violation of Chinese sovereignty. So there are these implications that China is building in, looking at what happened uh, with Russia's cyber operations and what happened with uh, Viasim, for example. I think that's right. You know, a, a couple of points I would add here. Um, to the extent that a country builds an offensive capability, um, it's not only, you know, it's it's not only a signal, but it also is a message that says, you know, we have this capability and you have to take this capability into account uh, in dealing with us. It can create greater freedom of action for the country that has this capability and limit the freedom of action for the country that now has to contend with it. And I think China in particular 
um, is been adept at not only developing that capability, but making sure that we have some awareness of it so that we have to take it into account should a situation arise, say, uh, say with Taiwan. The sovereignty issue is one that I think is particularly important because China's taken an approach to cyberspace that we call digital sovereignty and some people call digital authoritarianism, which is in essence to say that they intend to conduct governance in cyberspace the way they conduct governance on the streets of of Huangzhou. Um, I think that's true. As China builds out a global space architecture that is connected to a global, say, 5G architecture, which I believe is their ambition, and they continue to invest in IT infrastructure along the, the digital Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, the possibility exists that China will try to extend their digital sovereignty model to a space sovereignty model in which space systems and cyber systems are coupled together. There was some recent reporting, in fact, in the Washington Post just last month, which showed China's work to build uh, ground control stations throughout the world, including Latin America, in which essentially the Chinese staff them and control them. This, I think, would be an interesting step in the direction of saying that not only are these satellites sovereign, but the environment in which they operate, particularly if it's an environment coupled with cyberspace, is sovereign. That is a statement about the international system that China may be making, and one that is not necessarily welcome to us because we regard these things essentially as a global commons and they do not. If they extend this concept into space systems, and I think there's some likelihood that some possibility that they will, then this could reshape the international system or at least expand China's freedom of action in that system and constrain ours. I, yeah, I, I want to quickly add, Laura, one point. Oh, Sean, go no, ahead. That, I don't, no, no, no. Go ahead. You, I'll, you I'll first, Nami. Go ahead. One. <laughs> All right. So the one point, what Sam was saying is uh, excellent. And the other thing which I thought China, and so this is a lesson that I don't think has been talked about as much, is that I think one of the lessons you see from China in terms of responding to what happened in Ukraine since 2020, uh, 22 to today, uh two years uh, since it's happened, is that they are looking at the, con- the not just so institutionally, they have already integrated cyber and space, as you know, with the PLA-SSF. But what is even more interesting is that they are now trying to see if how their cyber security law that they instituted in 2017, the data protection law, data transfer, law enforcement, all that comes into a scenario in case there is an escalation in conflict. The one thing that I see Chinese conversations about is how Ukraine has managed its sensitive data, right? Because of continuous Russian attack. What Ukraine has done, which is very interesting, and I would love to hear Sean's perspective because Sean's done work there, is that, especially with Ukraine, is that Ukraine, in terms of open source uh, articles, is the first country to put its sensitive data in cloud computing outside of its sovereign land. Before, that data was within servers that were within Ukraine. Now, that particular data that is so sensitive is actually put somewhere else in another NATO country so that when Russian attack happens on the physical structure, the data is not lost. And China is listening to that. And what is interesting is that my speculation, this is not yet proven by the articles and the white papers they have issued in terms of civil cyber military uh, integration and connected to space systems. Uh, What I notice is that there is start of a conversation that does China have to think similarly in case there is escalation in conflict and they lose any kind of access to hard data or ground stations? Do you need ground stations elsewhere for data downlink and for getting it, right? And so this is a very interesting domain that they're looking at And the Ukraine case of actually being able to put its sensitive data outside of its local servers is a lesson that China is looking at. So it's very interesting. I want to just jump in. I mean, I think it's really interesting that you said that Ukraine, and I did not know this before, that Ukraine has put its sensitive data on servers that are located in NATO countries. And Jens Stoltenberg, back Two years ago, just immediately after the attack on Viasat, was pointedly asked by a reporter, hey, if there's a cyber attack, 
on a NATO country, on systems inside of a NATO country, not making a differentiation, whether it's government systems or commercial systems, whether that be space or on the ground or, or, or wherever it is, but that such a thing could actually spark an Article 5, which should give everybody pause. Because Jan Stoltenberg said, yeah, I could. Yeah, it, and I would love to have, yeah. you know, Sean's perspective on that, considering, you know, you <laughs> kind of work in that space. Uh, and, and as per the open, that's why I'm saying open source articles that are talking about this, right? So they are also talking about the fact that Ukraine took advantage of Amazon Web Service, Microsoft, Google to actually store sensitive data so that they have a backup if Russia attacks their localized servers. Sean, the floor oh, is thanks, yours. Thanks, Nami. Thanks. Yeah, I think... Um, I want to take this in a slightly different direction. So uh, I wanted to look at, I know we've been thinking a lot about states uh, for a moment, and this isn't me deflecting away from otherwise a very good set of questions. But I think the bit that here that strikes me is we it, we very often, we've made a lot of mistakes in cybersecurity uh, after having conceived of it as a domain some 20 some odd plus years ago. And, and the one of the fundamental errors has been uh, a mistake in recognizing the democratization of knowledge uh, when it comes to who can do cyber attacks. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, we're not, it doesn't have to be a state anymore. It really doesn't. And an exact satellites uh, came, uh, I think it, a lot of attention was pay, paid on satellites uh, just last year when uh, black hat hackers showed that for relatively low money, $25, uh, a bit of time, they could uh, commandeer or at least control uh, some aspects of satellites. And uh, the reasons for that are fairly clear, too, when uh, it comes to thinking about satellites as a kind of early and primitive technology, where, similar to what we had with early computing. People just didn't put a premium on security. They didn't think about it. And, uh, and so we're at a, a unique inflection point here where, on the one hand, uh, the state's Formerly, we're in the driver's seat when it came to most cybersecurity issues. That's long since passed. Sometime, I, I would argue, um, maybe 20 plus years ago, we really failed to be able to com command uh, all control in that space. And we've got people basically who can do that work, uh, many of them well-meaning and exposing uh, some of the problems, many who are not. Witness the growth of cybercrime as a national security concern. All you have to do is track where cybersecurity, cybercrime was 20 years ago and look at it today. And why does it enter into uh, the debate? It enters into the debate because it fundamentally is a, uh, a surprisingly large and powerful um, you know, uh, entity in and of itself that uh, can damage economies and trust in, in the systems that we have and all the things that we need to do. So I, I'd like to take a, just a slightly different direction in that regard and, and think about what would it look like for us to create something that wasn't just a, a worry about North Korea, Iran, China, the usual rogue uh, rogues gallery in cybersecurity, and rather, uh, how do we how do we make cyber and space synonymous with uh, uh, you know, one another so we get to a point of some security in the systems that we depend on and uh, eliminate surprise to the extent that we can. So last bit that I'd offer there and uh, is. You know, back to 2023. So we've got the black hat hacker who uh, you know does a great job, shows everybody what you can do with a little bit of pluck and and enterprise. Uh, we've got Elon Musk and Starlink with a an expired certificate coming down, a security cer certificate on, upon which all of our trust and uh, you know and encrypted communications uh, rely on security certificates when it comes to uh, the work that we do there. And it's one one spot I'll just put in a plug for Red Sift because that's one of the things that we do very well is uh, exposing when there are these problems and helping remediate them. But the, the bigger point is that we shouldn't have single points of failure like this and we shouldn't have surprise and we shouldn't have all of the different problems that we're we're talking about now. It, it's unfortunate to put it that way, but that's that's what I think is you know really at the crux of this issue. So again, that the Chinese and North Koreans and Iranians are going to be doing and uh, taking advantage of what a black hat ha hacker can do for 25 bucks or an expired certificate can bring down a, a critical piece of technology for the Ukrainians for hours. That's pretty astonishing. Let me follow up on it, Laura, because I think Sean makes some, some really very powerful points. Um, I do think um, cybersecurity has come to the space industry, you know, rather later, perhaps, than we wanted it to. And now there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it was essentially dominated 
you know, in the national security and civil government space, there weren't that many systems. They were bespoke systems. Um, they may have been assumptions, correct or not, about the security of them. But the last 10 years have seen almost an unprecedented rate of change. Um, companies like Starlink, I think I, I think I read earlier today that the Falcon 9 has had 300 successful launches. 300 launches of, of one particular platform. That's an amazing, that's an amazing thing. So if one takes a look at it, um, the industry that has grown up around space systems, uh, remote sensing, communications, GNSS, uh, transportation, you know, potentially mining, every uh, colonization, manufacturing uh, in space is the, 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 the rate of change has been really quite significant. And therefore, we're dealing with an entirely with an industry that is in many ways entirely different than it was even a decade ago. So the need to secure this industry seems to have come upon us not as a surprise, but very more or less suddenly. Having said that, there are some things that are happening. I think the work that the National Institute of Standards and Technology is doing um, in terms of developing uh, reference architectures and uh, for space systems is useful and impressive. They've done that for GNSS. They've done that for uh, hybrid space systems. NASA has released uh, in the last month or so a set of recommended best practices for securing space systems that actually is is quite detailed. The Space ISAC, where I, I serve as the board chair, um, has convened a number of working groups focused on different aspects of, of the cybersecurity of space systems, um, including looking at architectural issues and very much looking at the supply chain, which is a uh, which is an issue that was raised uh, that was raised earlier. And with something like 90 members, largely from the private sector, it demonstrates that there is a broader concern about the problem. I think uh, a point I would make, and I, I think, Sean, you sort of made this point, but I'll, I'll, I'll echo it, is the best way to deal with this problem is not by saying, well, what did the adversary, what's the adversary doing now and how do we prevent them from doing any more of it? That's very reactive. That's very responsive. That, in essence, lets somebody else call the shots. They decide where to attack, and then we have to figure out how to defend ourselves, as opposed to asking ourselves, how do we make the systems intrinsically more secure? And I think the work that is now being done uh, some, by some members of industry, Sean's company and others, um, and those that are working within the context of the Space ISAC, are in fact trying to create architectures that make space systems more secure. A tricky problem, by the way, right? Space, power, weight, and cost, the old swap C that makes um, anything you put on board a space platform is, exists at the at the expense of something else. Do you want to add power? Well, then what doesn't get power? You want to add weight? Well, what do you kick off the platform? You're going to add cost? Who pays for it? The user, the investors? You know, how is this going to be, how's, how's this going to be managed? You know, so the one of the things that I've called for and have been uh, uh, really quite adamant about is I think we need a national research and development strategy. By national, I mean government and industry and academia and FFRDCs, all hands in the ship's cook, as we used to say, for the research and development of cybersecurity for space systems so that we get ahead of the problem rather than responding to the last thing somebody did that we here, didn't here. like. Um, I think it's overdue, and that's something that I think we really ought to get about. Fully agree. Fully yeah, agree. I so that brings me to what I think is possibly the most difficult task and question, and, and maybe there isn't really a, a satisfying answer to it. I'm, I'm bracing myself for this, actually. And that is, how do we deter cyber attacks against space systems, right? There's a lot of sharing of information and there are strong and ongoing efforts from organizations like your SAM, right, the Space ISAC, to share threat information and analysis and best practices. But what about speaking softly and carrying a big stick? What about deterrence? Does the stick even exist? And, you know, guys, which one of you want to have a go at this one? Because I know this one's tough. May I start? Of course. All right. So... There, there are several trains running down parallel tracks here, and um, and and you know that's a good thing unless, of course, they should somehow the tracks come together and the and we have a train wreck. 
Norms for the protection of space systems have mostly, up until now, mostly, knock on wood, held up, right? Countries have not conducted physical kinetic attacks on other countries' space systems for the most part, though they've demonstrated the ability to do so, and they've tested this capability. India, Russia, China, the United States have demonstrated this capability against some of their own target satellites. Norms for, and, and deterrence theory has held up pretty well because space systems have been seen as strategic assets, particularly those associated with nuclear command and control, warfighting ISR. An attack against those might be seen as a presage to a strategic attack. So therefore, there is a red line associated with that. A couple of problems are emerging. A lot of space systems are not necessarily strategic systems, and therefore it's not clear that there's a strategic red line about going after a commercial remote sensing satellite. That's one problem. The other problem is that as space systems and cyber systems become more interdependent and interconnected, remember I talked about the two trains running parallel? Well, those two trains, those tracks are getting closer and closer and closer. And the problem is that norms for the protection of cyber systems really don't exist or have barely existed and are certainly not being respected. Cyber criminals, nation states, non-state actors, activists, call them what you will, or even cyber vandals have felt that they can ap operate almost with impunity. Now, there has been some law enforcement. In fact, today that was announced that uh, there had been an operation which took down a large ransomware, uh, ransomware band, ransomware ring. But the truth of the matter is that most cyber criminals and a lot of nation states feel that they can operate with impunity because norms means... Norms require enforcement. A norm means that there is a consensus that if you do this thing, it's really bad and you will be really, really sorry and the price you will pay will be out, will be, be out of proportion to the, to the damage that you've done. So you don't do it. Uh, the difficulty is that in cyberspace, that has not really held up well, despite the fact that there is the Paris call and the United States has joined it. Countries still, in many cases, and criminals operate with impunity. And as these two trains have converged, cyber and space, this leaves space systems at risk. Can deterrence uh, be, be put in place? Well, one question is, could the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 be modified such that countries will, in fact, respect the, the, the security and resilience of the security of space systems? I don't know. I, at this point in the international system, given the way things are, I'm not particularly optimistic. So this means that the United States and its allies will, in fact, have to announce that there are norms associated with, with the cyber attacks on space systems, that those norms will be enforced, that there will, in fact, be consequences to those who would, who would, seek, to, who would seek to attack them. Frankly, I think that may be the only direction we can go. And if more and more countries join us and an international consensus emerges, then perhaps competitors and allies will at some point feel compelled to join that consensus. But at the moment, they don't think they need to. So I think starting perhaps with the Artemis Accord and then putting a little bit of muscle behind them such that we demonstrate consequences to these acts, that I think is, is maybe the only way to gain deterrence. And we're some way from that, Laura. We're not there yet, and I don't know when we will be. Yeah, I, I actually want to respond to that as well in terms of carrying on from Sam's uh, point about norms. Let's let's go to space now, right? Even for United Nations General Assembly Resolution 7536 that talks about reducing space threats, uh, there is no consensus. So if you look at the Indian position, they have abstained and they've explained why. They don't agree with the interpretation of responsible. And then the other thing, which is so interesting, where there is actually convergence between India and China, is that they both argue that we need treaty-based obligations, cannot be norms, because norms can only do this much in terms of deterrence, actually does not deter, because it's not binding, right? They want binding. And this is very interesting because... If you look at China's articulation for its cybersecurity framework, what is always pointed out is that they want to always make themselves come across. And there is a reason for that, because there is, of course, fingers pointing at China's own non-state actors carrying out a lot of cyber attacks on other nations. Right? For example, one of the biggest conversations in China is that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency put out a cybersecurity advisory 
that pointed out that a non-state uh, actor from China called Vault Typhoon was actually lurking in American critical infrastructure for a very long time. And what is so interesting about that advisory is that, the, for example, the FBI, the National Security Agency, and CISA points out that what they're noticing is a pattern change. Earlier, all these activities were about espionage or, or, or intelligence gathering. Today, it's actually about creating a pre-conflict capability that can target American critical infrastructure. And you must have seen that advisory, right? And so space systems come in too, in terms of what happens to ground stations then and commercial space. Oh, yeah. Just because we don't recognize it as a national critical infrastructure certainly doesn't mean that China doesn't see it as a national critical infrastructure. And therefore, because they do, yeah, they will target it. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yes. And, and, and as Sean was also mentioning, Agreed. it's not a surprise they are doing this because if you remember, for a very long time, Chinese military thinking is that there are two areas where the U.S. is weak. One is space, where we can target them, for example, with anti-satellite or with cyber attacks, which is less costly, and attribution is a big issue. And then the other important thing, which uh, they, they also recognize, is that the concept of asymmetric warfare, right? So this is where how they gain advantage. And what is even more fascinating is that military sciences study points out, the Academy of Military Sciences points out that what can win in terms of gaining advantage is this concept of unrestricted warfare, right? So this is part of that entire thinking. Their civil-military fusion, their integration of space and cyber, the fact that the Joint Council of the People's Republic of China issued guidelines in 2019 and updated it about joint concept of operations, right? Multi-domain operation. So to me, it's not a surprise. But then when it happens, it is truly a surprise for the the population or people mm -hmm. viewing it right and so mm -hmm. i think i think we need to keep all that in mind that there is a this is a part of a very long game and also the fact that at the level of norms there is enormous resistance both in space and cyber in terms of how do you decide who is responsible who is the actor there is a lot of skepticism uh, to my let, mind. let me jump in there too and just uh, just chime in on a bit because there's so many good threads here uh, that uh, both uh, Nami and Sam, you just uh, you got my brain firing away with a variety of thoughts. So first first bit, I'd say uh, that so if we talk about attribution and uh, cyber attribution for a long time uh, used to be sort of a it was a thing that stopped us, I think, from uh, thinking broadly about how we could improve improve cyber trust in cyberspace. And uh, and make make cyber just a, a better a better space for all of us. And the, that by which I mean that we used to really hang a lot on technical attribution being something that we called the the, the attribution challenge. We put quotes around it. We used to make it in bold, and we'd make this sort of thing that uh, everybody was supposed to think about uh, how difficult it was going to be. Well, it turns out it's not that difficult. And it turns out that we've gotten a lot better at it. And it's one of the positive stories in cybersecurity is that we've gotten a lot better at being able to track all the way back to who the actors are, or at least where they might be, or maybe even uh, you know uh, why they did uh, what they did. And so it becomes more of a political will question now and less a technical question. And that's the interesting bit there. Now, I'm not saying that misattribution can't occur or that uh, it's perfect or that it's uh, it's it's still, you know, in the craft stage, maybe an art. It's not a perfect science. We'll get there, I think. But uh, the, that's one hurdle I think that we can say we've done pretty well with with regard to cyber. As I say, it becomes a more of a political will question. Uh, there are going to be states that just don't care, right? There are going to be actors who really sim simply don't care, normative, legal or not. Uh, whatever uh, you know might happen in cyberspace, if they want to try and get away with it, they may try and do that. So that that's that's something that I just think we need to absorb. Another portion, you know, sort of philosophically that I like to think about is uh, with regard to the, the hu a human condition issue with regard to security, and that's we're pretty bad about things that are not visible to us. We really don't think very much, and not people in this room. People in this room are thinking about something that's not visible necessarily. Security in space is a very hard thing to think about, but uh, we we tend to think about things that are very acute, very short term, uh, and and we're not very good at that. And that I think partly explains why we haven't been very good about securing cyberspace, and why we have to date 
despite the good work that you know Sam you mentioned uh, with that NIST is doing and uh, ISAC and others, I think we're still at a stage where we're not thinking very well about space and cyber together. And uh, and I I would just say any industry, all industries are digital now. All industries should be thinking about security now, regardless. And the last bit I'd say there too is that uh, the the industries it's it's not as if this is. Um, that hard necessarily to increase the costs, and this was your, getting all the way back to your question, Laura. Increase the costs on the aggressor, so to to the point where they, yeah, to create a deterrence. It's not. It's this is not impossible to conceive of, and it's in fact relatively straightforward. Uh, and some of that gets all the way back to the belts and braces approach that I I have to cyber, which is you know are are the entities terrestrial entities uh, that are working on whatever the product is in this instance it's 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 space are they in fact thinking about cyber as a secure by design approach are they thinking about it as a fundamental enabler of their business and of their organization and if they are not then they've enabled the the enemy whoever the enemy might be or the aggressor in that space uh, to improve it you don't need to do very much it turns out right you need to think uh you know very deliberately you need to prioritize you need to spend yes but it's not as if it can't be done uh we've we've done a lot more difficult things uh you know throughout humanity so this is this uh, is the positive story that i want to spin a little bit for us so i think you know uh you know when i when i think when you invited me to the show and i started thinking about all of the different things that an adversary might do they're going to look at uh, terrestrial based things terrestrial based enterprises things that don't do the basics uh that don't have multi factor authentication that don't secure or properly know about their expiring certificates things that are uh, that don't have uh, a good command over all of their digital assets. Very basic stuff. Or how about that 56K modem that, into data there, centers, which is basically there you what go. ground stations you know, so are. It, 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 it just keeps spinning in right. these different directions where you look at it and say, now, to improve uh, that your posture, you can increase some of the costs. Yeah, it'll increase costs for you, but it'll make it much more burdensome for the adversary. All right, everybody. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I actually have a quick last thought. So uh, based on what Sean said about political will, right? So the one thing I notice, uh, which is very common in terms of uh, China's response to any allegation that a state-sponsored cyber actor for the People's Republic of China has done a particular activity, they would come back and say, especially the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of State, saying that... Prove it. And what do you mean sure. by state sponsored? This guy's acted on their own. We had no, no, we, it's not the state entity that did it. These are nationalistic, out of whack organizations doing this. And so you cannot really say it's us. So it's a very, it's, it's very interesting, this world of cyber. And I can see that replicated in space as well. And I think the one lesson I forgot to say about what China and Russia and everyone else actually is learning from the Ukraine conflict is that you don't need anti-satellite weapons to disable uh, satellites. They are much more expensive to even build a missile. And then they are also very visible. You know who's doing it immediately. What they're thinking now is that we probably should invest even more in our cyber capability of disabling services, targeting uh, ground stations and software, which is a much better way. I think that's one of the biggest lessons they're learning. I would agree with that. Of course, if a country says, look, the fact that it happened from our territory doesn't mean that you know our government was involved, my response is, well, then you've got a law enforcement problem and it doesn't seem like you're capable of, of exercising effective law enforcement in what you claim to be your own sovereign territory. You know, too bad... It, too bad for you, and, and which is another way of saying that I think you have to hold countries responsible for cyber activity, even if you can't attribute it to the nation state. If it's happening within their borders, I think it's their responsibility. And if they can't manage it, then either they don't want to or they don't have the capacity to do so. Um, and in the case of a, of a major power or a peer competitor, I think that could be pretty embarrassing. I'll close with this point, and it's a point I made uh, yesterday at a at a conference on civil space systems, and that is, our space systems, are, we we talk about them as being important to national security, and we talk about them as being important to economic security. Those are really the same thing today. Um, our status as a global power not only depends on our military; it depends on our technological leadership. 
our status as a world power depends as much on our economy as, as it does on our on our defense industrial base. It depends on our ability to be to be technological leaders. If we are not technological leaders in space, we lose our status as a great power. If we surrender space as sovereign territory to somebody else they, who declares it sovereign at our expense, we lose our status as a as a great power, which I am um, is something I'm unwilling to see. So to the extent that other countries feel that they can hold our interests in space at risk, what they're holding it at risk is not just a few systems. It's holding, uh, it, they're holding at risk our status as a global power, as a country that, that plays a key and in some cases decisive role in the global economy and global shipping, global communications, global supply chains. That's not something that we should be prepared to, to accept. And to the extent that those things are held at risk and we see them being held at risk, it diminishes our global role and both our own security and the security of the international system. So even if these systems are not being employed, the fact that they could be employed means that we need to be able to defend against them and not just respond to these developments, but get ahead of them. Otherwise, one aspect of America's advantages on the world stage would be lost. And that's another reason why I think this is so important. And I'll stop with that. Sam, Namrita, Sean, thank you all so much for making the time to come on the Downlink podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to have been on the broadcast. Thank you, Laura. That's it for this week. For your daily dose of award-winning defense coverage, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report with Vaga Maradian. And for the Maritime Domain, listen to Cavus Ships with Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello. And get your Air Domain news and analysis from the Air Power Podcast with J.J. Gertler and Vaga Maradian. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.